Well, hello everyone. I'm Jill Bloom, publisher of Walls and Ceilings, and thank you for watching or listening, I should say, whether you're uh, watching on video or listening on our podcast. One of the really cool ideas that has evolved during COVID-19 are these special Q&A interviews with our industry influencers. We always have great content about contractors and what they need to know to improve their business. However, we also have so many really cool, interesting people uh, with our manufacturers and suppliers that have impacted our industry, and we are so thrilled to help tell their story. So today we are with a very special, we are having a very special interview with one of our walls and ceilings influencers, Mike Griffin. Mike is the national sales director at Demand Products and everyone here at Walls and Ceilings has known Mike for many years and we are so honored to be visiting with him today. So Mike, thank you so much. And we're so, we really, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for asking me to do this. You guys have been great to me over the years. So. <laughs> Well, the, the feelings are mutual. You've been a big help to us as well. So, Mike, I really want to start off with tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and you know when and how did you get started in this incredible industry? I'm going to date myself, but I started in 1980. I started in 1980. I started as a laborer for masonry, restoration, waterproofing company. Essentially what we did, we specialized in high rise restoration, redoing, tuck pointing, waterproofing, stone and brick removal. We worked with granite, marble, stucco, and eaves. If it was on a vertical plane on a wall that was existing, that's what I did. I worked with a company that fixed the installation. We, at that point, we did never did brand new installations. It's all restoration work. So that's where I was able to pick up how things are done right and how things are done wrong. So, Mike, uh, did your college experience sort of lead you to the building products or was building products something that you were always interested in throughout your life? I kind of did it backwards. When I got involved <laughs> in the construction trade, I was on the wall. Like I said, it started in 1980. I was on the wall for about a dozen years and I was working. I had no interest or inclination to work for a manufacturer at the time. I was just out there doing what I did, and I was part of the Bricklayers and Allied Craftsmen Union as far as a training thing. And it's not because I'm pro-union or not. That's just the reality of what happened where I was. Mm -hmm. Then in 1992, we were assigned a building in, um, it's called Shakopee, Minnesota. And that building happened to be the building that was owned by Chemrex slash Sonneborn. I'm going back a number of years. Um, it was a manufacturing company. We all know that company today as uh, was BASF, now they're Master Builders Products. So they've gone through some changes. So I went to work on that building. My crew and myself went around the building. We did what was necessary to be done. And while we were doing that, I developed a friendship with the uh, cement lab technician or the chemist. When we hit the winter layoff, I wound up going to work for him as a lab technician. Huh. It was going to be a job just for the winter until springtime came around. And I was going to get back on the wall doing what I'd been doing. But the opportunities that the cement lab and working for a big manufacturer kind of changed my thought process. Hmm. And in that thought process, as I started learning more and more about the business is when I went back to school. So I went back to school after I was working for a manufacturer. I went back to school when I was 32 years old. 
So Mike, I've got a, I've got a question for you though. Can you go back and just tell us the story? Uh, how was it that you were hired as a cement lab technician? We went to a building in Shakopee, Minnesota, and it happened to be Chemrex slash Sonneborn's headquarters. Okay. The building was empty except for the R&D staff who'd been relocated from New Brighton, Colorado to Minnesota. And in that building, there was a cement chemist, urethane chemist, all sorts of them. But since I was working with cementitious materials, I developed a relationship with the head chemist and he kept coming out and giving us different materials to try. And I would offer him my unbiased opinion on whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. The job was going on in the latter part of the year and it was right before winter layoff. When you work in Minnesota, the 12 years I did, you only get some winters in, some winters off, otherwise you're on unemployment. So one morning, it was rather brisk out. I was working on the northern side of the building. I was patching a window. I wasn't in a very good mood. Yeah. And as I was patching the window area, I was putting material up into the wall saying, I would like to get out of this business. <laughs> Do something different. The chemist happened to be standing right there behind me and said, you seem like you're in a bad mood. And I said, I am. And I repeated again, I'd like to go do something different. He said, well, what would, what would you think or how would you feel about being a cement lab technician? And I looked at him and I said, I get to wear a fancy lab coat like that and <laughs> cubes and stuff in the lab. I'm not sure that I'm even qualified, nor do I want to do anything like that. And he said, if I could scan you an application, would you fill it out and build a resume? Heck, I didn't even know what a resume was, but I filled out <laughs> the application. We sat down, we had the interview. And then during the interview with him and another individual, they passed a sheet of paper across me and said, this is what we can pay you. And I said, no, thanks, but no, thanks, but I, I, can't, I can't work for that. So they said, what could you work for? So I came up with another number, which wasn't exorbitant, but I didn't think they would bite on it. And I passed it back, well, they bit. So therefore, I went to work for the man. Now, it's even interesting, the first day I showed up for work, he didn't recognize me because <clears throat> what I'd want, um, when I interviewed, when I was pointing, when I was doing all the work that I was doing, my hair was quite a bit longer and I had a full beard. <laughs> when I showed up, there was another individual that worked in the technical department that said, hey, I get that you got hired, but if you want to move within the organization, you're going to have to clean yourself up. So I did. So when I showed up, he didn't recognize me. Amazing. So what, you like shaved your beard and cut your hair? Yep. Okay. Do you have before and after pictures? Because I think we need to have those. <laughs> I don't know where I could even find them. <laughs> I want to see a picture from you in like 11th grade. Long hair in 11th grade. Oh, yeah. Okay. I want to put, I want you to go back to your, like your high school, uh, you know, yearbook. <laughs> you're going to snap, you're going to snap a picture. We'll be like, here's Mike before and after. <laughs> that's too funny. Well, that's a great story, Mike. Thank you. Okay. So Mike, when you were, when you started this job with the cement, with the lab, with this technician, like what were you doing and what was, what did you love about that? That kind of changed your focus. 
I went into the job thinking that I could wind up being a technical services advisor. So it was a way to get into the company. And I wanted to be the guy that went out on job sites and helped people with the manufacturers. But as I got involved in the lab, I was involved in making little concrete cubes, uh, pigmenting tiles, and learning different aspects of the whole chemistry behind cement and how everything works together. So as I, as I learned more and more from that, I was still Mike Griffin. I was at, had my lab coat and I walked around, but I also met a lot of different people because there was other product lines that were within that category of that company, sealants, coatings, epoxies. And I kind of made my way around the organization trying to figure out how I could do more than just being in a cement lab. Hmm. Well, it was really interesting. I know that, gosh, back several years ago, we were at a lab, um, with um, Simpson, Guppert, and Hugh, uh, they're a, uh, I'm, I'm saying their name wrong, but we met like what the, the, one of the guys that was called the doctor of concrete. And I was amazed <laughs> what these guys do and how, how technical concrete is. So I can, I can totally understand. I can see you back then, like being really just also totally intrigued with how technical concrete can be. Well, it was interesting to me because as a contractor, um, I never read a bag or a bucket on how something worked. <laughs> I mean, a product came to the job, use this, I'll say brand X. We looked at it, I'm familiar with how that works, and then we'd go to work and work with it. Mm. When I went to work for a lab, I found out that there's a lot more stuff that was technical, but water to cement ratio, all, all these other things, and then how these products were developed and field tested. So that that's what I found kind of interesting about that whole opportunity with working within that lab. Mm -hmm. And then I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead, but it actually evolved into a lot more because being a contractor, um, that was my expertise. And I had a dozen years of experience with it. I remember one time sitting by the coffee machine, um, I had my lab coat on, my boss was there and there was the CEO of the company at the time and the VP of marketing. And there was a potential problem with the project down in Florida. And me, I'm not the quietest person. I have kind of a big mouth. I made a comment, like, hey, I could fix that. And the two guys looked over me and who is this? And my boss, the, who was a cement chemist, said, well, explained who I was. We wound up going into a meeting. Within a week, I was sent down to where this project was. And I went down there with my boss. And we fixed the problem. I won't bore you with all the details, but we remedied the situation that occurred. So then when we came back, a new position was created. It was called application specialist. And that became my new job. <laughs> Essentially, I had a one and a half car garage in the back of their building. And marketing would develop a product. The lab, whether it was a cement lab, urethane lab, or epoxy lab, would come up with an idea from that. And before it went to the marketplace, it went back to me in my little garage. <laughs> I figured out how to make the product work or not work. Assuming that it did work, then it was my job to work with the sales force of that organization to get with contractors across the United States and field test the products to see if it really worked in the way we wanted it to work before we released the product. Mm. So that was uh, kind of the evolution, what happened with me there. So I wound up doing that for a few years. And then they had some opportunities to go back to the question about college, Hannah, mm -hmm. is that uh, they had some opportunities for product marketing management. Okay. And when they came back to me, I applied the first time and they came back and said, you've got a lot of what we need. 
but you need some technical schooling background. So I went back to school on the company dime mm -hmm. and <clears throat> eventually wound up getting the pedigree that I needed to get and wind up getting the position that I needed to get within the organization. Mike, that is so cool. I did not realize that you went back to college years after. Yeah. Yeah, because when I was, when I went in 1980, when I went, I mean, I'd started school then. I did at that time, it wasn't for me. And that's how I, why I got into the whole construction restoration gig. But then when I got out of it to this thing, was, that's why I went back to school because you had to have the pedigree or the pigskin or the degree or whatever you want to call it in order to further the advancement that I had within the organization because. What happened to me after that application specialist, I wound up with a number of other different positions within the organization, which kind of broadened my horizon on what I thought I knew versus what I did know. And it's actually been very good for me. Yeah, so this seems as good a time as any uh, to have you, why don't you walk us through the different roles that you've had throughout your career? So you were an application specialist for a few years with this company, and then what position did that involve too, and how did you get to where you are today? Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the lowdown. If you yeah, give us the lowdown. <laughs> right. I started as a cement lab technician, as I mentioned to you. From there, I went into application specialist, mm -hmm. and changed from one to the other was year 18 months and then the product management thing that i just mentioned to you i applied for it a couple of times and when i did get it i became the division three product manager for the, for the company okay. division three for those that don't know is concrete repair the curing compounds patching materials grouts and stuff like that so i i learned how to work that product category with the other r d people at that time and from there, I evolved into a product manager for coatings. When I talk about coatings, I'm talking wall coatings, acrylic and elastomeric. And I also worked with horizontal floor coatings as well. I did that for a couple of years. And then the company decided they were going to get into the stucco in the yeast business. So I was assigned to develop the product line called Sonowall Stucco Systems. Okay. So that brings us up into somewhere into like 1994. Okay. And so what I did is I worked with another gentleman who was an expert in stucco and East. I was the marketing person. He was a national sales manager. So we developed the product line, the tinting procedures, the application procedures, novel literature. And we worked with our sales force to get it going. He was outside sales. I was inside. So I was the inside person. He was the outside person. Mm -hmm. And when we got to a certain point in time, and I think that was somewhere, I can't even remember the date, but the product line had expanded to a point where they needed somebody else to go outside. And I volunteered or applied for the position. And that's how I got into the outside sales world. And I ran the Eastern Seaboard for these people in the Sonowall Stucco Systems. Mm -hmm. And I did that up until the year 2004. 2004, I then left. And I went to work for a company based out of Phoenix, Arizona, called Ultracoat Products. Mm -hmm. And when I went to work for them, it was Ultracoat Products. Part of the caveat was that we'd get into EFs as well. So when I was over there, we bought an EFs line and we converted that over to our product line and category, got all the code reports and all that stuff done. That took about three years. And then I moved on from there. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And I moved on from there. I went to a company called Specmix Incorporated based out of Mendota Heights, Minnesota. Specmix, I was hired to develop their pre-blended stucco program. And um, that's what I did. I, I learned from their expertise that they have on the pre-blended mortars. Well, pre-blended mortars versus field mix have got opportunities that are better than field mixing. And I was doing that for about 18 months when a company called Quickrete. Quickrete was a license. Uh, spec mix was a licensee of Quickrete, which meant Quickrete plants made spec mix products, Quickrete plants and others. And Quickrete actually bought spec mix. So when Quickrete bought Specmix, I was now responsible for the Quickrete commercial development of their stucco program, along with the Specmix development of their program and ran the two brands, Specmix and Quickrete. And part of our big key in that handle was what we did is we took our expertise or our core competency, which was making cementitious materials effective, efficient, and consistent. And we partnered with the manufacturers of East Systems, EASF wall systems at the time, mm-hmm. Stowe, Drive-It, Parex, Masterwall, and all the, or, all the product lines that each one of those had. So the idea behind that was they had their customer base and what they were doing and their efficiencies on what they did, but their efficiencies were not necessarily in making bagged stucco. Mm-hmm. So we came up with an alliance or a strategic alliance is what we called it, where they would use our material in our packaging in their wall systems and then offer full system warranties on stuck with materials. And I wound up doing that up until, when did I leave them? I want to say about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went to Keen Building Products. Mm-hmm. When I went over to Keen Building Products, again, another segue into the stucco in the yeast market because they are the developer and they're the, probably one of the top ones as it relates to the development of entangled net rain screens, which became another component of wall systems. So I went over there as their division manager. And part of my task there was to help get the distribution cleaned up, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. and to get them updated on the necessary testing that they needed to do stuff in the commercial stucco market. Hmm. So one of my biggest accomplishment there, if there was, is, if you want to call it that, is we're able to take all their products and systems and do some extensive fire testing. Mm-hmm. Everybody's heard of the word NFPA 285, well, key building products, unless something's changed over the weekend, is the only manufacturer that I know of to date that with Entangled Net has got a number of systems that are compliant with NFPA 285. I'm not going to say it's an NFPA 285 approved product because that would make me sound like a knucklehead because there's no such a thing, but there it does fit in many, many different types of systems. And from there, I came over to demand products. And that was February of this year. My task with demand products is to Expand their distribution, expand the distribution network, um, add some more products to the portfolio that makes some sense for what it does and how they fit with Succo and with East. And the cool thing about all of this is when you take a look at the whole network 
the people that I was dealing with on the distribution side for going all the way back to when I was with Chemrex, which is now Master Walls or Master Builder Systems. Um, it's the same set of customers. It's the same okay. distributors across the country. Yeah. When I went to Quickrete, it was the same distributors where we developed that. Same thing with Keen and the same thing with Demand. And the reason I say that I think that's kind of cool because I've stayed in the industry. I haven't wavered from that but I never went to a direct competitor of my previous employer. <laughs> it was just another segment. So like right now, what I'm doing is I'm helping demand products expand their network within Stucco and East as an accessory to everything else I've done in the past part of my uh, career. Oh. Wow. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> and I was going to say like too. I ship all the time. I mean, I've spent, in, I've spent time in places. I mean, yeah you know from the from the time is it's not just it's not because i can't hold a job it's just because <laughs> interests stand upon it so that's how i wound up where i'm at right now yeah and uh is that how the nickname uh stucco mike came about because you're i mean you're stucco mike it's it's obvious through all those stories you know stucco in and out so uh like is that stucco how that the stucco mike story i think that's kind of I, I enjoy that story and i and i'll tell you how i got that name perfect <laughs> <clears throat> Right after Quick Crete purchased Specmix, a couple of us were sent down to Atlanta where Quick Crete is stationed or that's where their headquarters are. Quick Crete is still a privately held company. I don't know a whole lot of people that know that. And the people that own it, their last name is Winchester, not the gun people, but the Winchesters. <laughs> and I was in a meeting with the three brothers, the upper management team of Quickrete, and we were having some discussions on how to move things forward within the acquisition of both Specmix Stucco and Quickrete Stucco. Mm -hmm. And Jim Winchester gave me the name Stucco Mike. Mm -hmm. And that moniker is stuck. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's expanded beyond their people and the higher up in that organization. I mean, that's how I was referred to. I wasn't referred to as Mike Griffin. I was referred to as Stucco Mike <laughs> in, in the name Stuck. It's yeah, stuck with me today. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. That, that that's how that name came about. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, why don't you? Since you've had so much experience, is there any uh, contractor stories or a, a story of the trade that is one of your favorites that you like to tell? I was trying to figure out which one would be my favorite, so I have two. Okay, perfect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before I wound up getting the moniker stuck on Mike, and I was uh, with the company, it was Chemrex Sonneborn at the time. Myself and another gentleman I worked with, we were in Chicago, and we were working with a sealant contractor, caulking sealants, it was the um, Sears Tower was the name of the building at the time. He was having some issues with the way the material worked or perceived issues, and I said, well, I think I can help you out. And he looked at me and you know, he said, well, I had a golf shirt on and Dockers. And he looked at me like, well, what the hell do you know? <laughs> and I said, well, I used to do this. And again, he just thought that was salesman speak. Mm -hmm. So I said, look, I'll get on the swing with you and I'll ride. And he says, what do you mean you'll get on the swing with me and ride? <laughs> when I talk about swing, I'm talking staging on the side of the building. Uh -huh. I said, I'll get up there with you. And I said, but the first thing I do before I get on is I'm going to go up and check your rigging. <laughs> and he says, well, who are you to check my rig? And I said, would you get on a swing like this without checking it? 
He says, uh-huh. well, I guess you have a good point. He says, you want to start from the top or the bottom? I said, well, your rigging's on top, so we'll go up there. And since we're up there already and the swing's on the top, why don't we just jump over the parapet roof, get on the swing, and then ride down to the floor that you want? That shocked the, that shocked the individual. It's not because I'm some brilliant person. I did it for a dozen years. Mm-hmm. So riding on a swing stage wasn't that big of a deal to me at the time. But the point I like that story is it gave me some credibility. Here's a salesperson that's out here that's willing to go out and do it. And then when we actually got on the wall and went down to the area, I was able to take the bulk caulking. Uh-huh. It's not like a tube like you get at home depot or something like that. You come out of a cartridge. It's actually sucking it out of a pail and putting it in the joint. And I was able to do that. That impressed that contract. Huh. Fast forward to a few years ago when I was stuck on Mike, I was in a job (laughs) in Nashville, Tennessee, and a contractor was having some issues or perceived issues with the way our material was pumping or not. So as everybody's standing on the street, looking at the five guys up on the scaffolds, wondering what's going on, I said to the contractor, I said, do you mind if I go up there? He said, what are you going to do if you go up there? I said, do you just mind if I go up there? So I spent the afternoon up there with his guys and we got the material to pump properly. Again, it was a credibility thing because here's a sales guy that was willing to go jump on the wall. Mm -hmm. But the reason I like those two stories, it goes back to the guy when I got into sales that essentially said, as a, if you're going to be an effective salesperson of building materials, you have to pull it through distribution. The contractors have to have your respect you have to have their back. Yeah. You can point to where the materials need to be purchased. But if you develop that relationship, that credibility will take you a long way. Mm. Those words stuck in my head. And those are just two examples. I have others, but those are just two examples that I, I kind of like. So I have actually two follow-up questions to that, Mike. So the first is, is when you're, when your company is hiring salespeople, do you, is it a requirement that they've been a contractor in the past or do you try to look for people like that, that have that experience so they know what it's like to be up on the swing? <clears throat> Generally speaking, that's been something that I've wanted to do and that's what I've looked for. Mm-hmm. That's not anything that either that any of the companies mandated or looked to. The difficulty in doing that is people want degrees now. So to find somebody that's got that practical experience, who's actually been on and done the work and finished the degree, there's there's more out there than you think. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. as many as you would want. Mm-hmm. So I was given the latitude a few times to hire people that had got the degree but they had the expertise and they had the ability to train on the sales side of things. Oh and yeah. The people that I found most effective. I mean, you know, a lot of the people that you've met a lot of the people that worked with me over the years in, in it's a, it's a wide variety of folks, but yes, they all have the ability to go and do it. And those that didn't, we focused on trying to train them to have that ability once they got into that situation. Yeah. Um, there's one, one of the guys that works for me, I won't mention his name, but when he came to work for me when I was at Quick Creek. He's still there. I'm not. But I mean, we saw him most times in a starch shirt, fancy jeans, and or fancy pants and shiny shoes. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if he owned a pair of jeans at the time. Why <laughs> if you would see the guy? I mean, he, he presents himself well, mm-hmm. but he's got boots and jeans, and he actually knows how to play with the materials. Could he make a living doing it? Likely not. 
but does he know enough where he can help his customers? Yes, he does. Right. So I firmly believe that. We all know that's the most important thing is being able to help your customers. Yes. So the second question is, uh, I heard you mention a couple different times, perceived problem. So was it always something that they just weren't doing, the contractors weren't doing correctly, that they were perceiving that they had an issue? A lot of times, yes. I mean, manufacturers, I get me in trouble saying this, most times people want to say it's applicator error. Sure, kind of like a pilot error. Yeah, very seldom is it a material issue. And okay. If you go out there and you have an, uh, if you have a knowledge of the material that you're selling, even if it's minimal, and you can show that the material works, that gives you some more credibility going back. And if you go to those job sites and you can actually work with them, you can minimize an awful lot of official complaint reports mm-hmm. based on that. Now, the other side to that is if there is something that's wrong with the material. Don't dig in your heels and say, hey, it's your fault. You're the applicator. You're wrong because that's just going to alienate people. You work with them to figure out how to do it. Right. But perceived, oftentimes, I go back to the statement I said, well, you know, I didn't mix, didn't read the directions to mix a bag. So with that, I'll tell you another story. <laughs> Years ago, I was working. Uh, we had a polymer modified base coat, which means you have to mix it for a period of time. You have to let it sit or slake or get fat for a few minutes. And then the raw materials do what it's supposed to do. Then you drill it back up and then you go get the necessary pot life out of the product, let's say 45 minutes for discussion purposes. A number of years ago, one of the guys called me up and says, Griffin, your stuff don't work. Get down to Texas. You got to fix it. Your stuff is junk. (gasps) Pretty much all I got. Whoa. From our factory guy, not from the contractor. Yeah. So I went down there, went to the job site. I didn't go to the foreman. I didn't go to the superintendent. I went over to the guy that was mixing the material. I said, show me how you're mixing the material. And he mixed up 10 or 15 buckets. And then as soon as he got done mixing, he picked those buckets up and took them over to the scaffolding for people to work on. Mm-hmm. Well, they only got 10 or 15 minutes of pot life out of the turn before it turned into a boating. Right. Well, it wasn't the product's fault. It's because the individual did not let it sit or get fat or slake for a few mm-hmm. minutes before we took it back there. So then we took some buckets back. I said, now if you mix it this way, let it sit, hit it again, take it to the scaffolding, they won't have a problem. Wow. So Jill, to your point, that's perceived versus reality. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how it worked. Now, my approach might not have been the right way to do it because I went right to the person mixing it instead of going up to the boss. Mm-hmm. But what it did is it eliminated any discussions. Well, I sure. They watched, saw what they did, let them do it, then go back and show them what they did was wrong. Right. Oh, and the guy that was mixing it was like, probably like, I love you. Yeah. Right. I, and you know, who knows? Maybe he was... You know, who, who knows what was happening with why he wasn't reading the directions correctly, but you just, you know what they say showing is, oh gosh, what's the saying about, you know, when you show somebody, it's kind of like te- you can teach them how to fish or you can give them a fish or teach them how to fish. You are teaching yeah, these guys how to fish. Yeah. And that, that's essentially what it is. And that's why I'm going back to your other question earlier, Jill. And that's why I think it's imperative that salespeople have an understanding of their tool. Again, they don't have to be experts. Right but they have to understand the fundamental basics of it because perception becomes a reality. Yeah. If I hadn't gone down there and fixed that in the way that it was done, 
that particular contractor likely wouldn't have used the material for any more of that job because, hey, my guy says it's bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to use it. Yeah. And then they don't. Wow. Stucco Mike to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wow. So you've certainly seen a lot of things. So is there a like a now from this experience with the perceived problems, is there a sort of training that like, do you usually show people how to mix it? Or is it you let them try to do it and then you come and help save the day if something goes wrong? No, uh, the idea behind it, that's the other thing to we learn from that is when people do um, wet walls and product demos and stuff like that. These are the things that when you're demonstrating the material to your distributor and or contractor as you're doing yeah. it, you make sure that they understand how all these things work. Mm-hmm. Now, when I go back to the particular base code I'm talking about, not wetting out properly, I mean, that, that goes back a number of years. People really know that now. Mm-hmm. People emphasize and train that now. Um, so that's the kind of stuff you want to steer ahead of, steer away from right from the beginning in the training of your contractors. And part of that training, the op contractors comes through is, you know, what background did they have? Where did they come from? Uh, what was their training? What was their apprenticeship? You know, right. how was their training done? Mm-hmm. But yes, that's something you have to understand how that product works in order to to make it function in the way that it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, what would you say right now are the biggest challenges that are facing the stucco and eaves industry? Labor, labor, labor. <laughs> You know what I mean by that is there's people out that are doing but labor, labor, labor goes back to training. Mm-hmm. People have to understand the systems that they're putting together. The majority of the systems within our industry, they're the same regardless of the brand, the brand. So the fundamentals are not that different between product A and product B. The key is whether you're a stucco installer or an East installer, just because you're one doesn't necessarily mean you can do the other. Yeah. So that goes back into the training session on how to do things. I'm not saying one is more skilled than the other because that'd get me in trouble, but the nuances of how they're put together are quite different. Right. So I'd say the biggest thing there is the training. I think I did make another note on that too. What's number one? Hang on. Mm-hmm. And then getting new people into the business. That was the other key. And that's why I want to make sure I look up. The, that's the other thing is facing us is getting new young blood into the trades, into the business, because <clears throat> there's a shortage of that. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, I mean, not everybody's cut out to go to, you know, college. Yeah, absolutely. Something like that. So there is real opportunities where people can make a really good living mm-hmm. by installing stucco reefs and they can feed their families and everything else. It's not a minimum wage job. There's a skill involved and there's people that you can do that can train. So that's one of the biggest challenges is getting younger people interested in coming and working for it. It's not something you're gonna be great at in two or three weeks. It's time, it's an evolution. Yeah. So, sorry, Jill. is there a certain way, Mike, that you uh, search for the younger generation? Like, is it you're going and speaking at events and telling them, hey, this is another option for you? Or is it more word of mouth? Or how do you uh, bring the younger generations in? The local trade organizations are across the United States, and there's a lot of them in each region. Yeah. Um, 
I don't, I don't want to name them all because if I miss somebody, that wouldn't be fair. But <laughs> there are trade associations affiliated with walls and ceilings across the United States. And everybody's taking a look at how they can recruit more, whether it's somebody that they know, a reference from somebody else. Yeah. There are trade associations that are actually going to vocational schools. Mm-hmm. And there's big, been a big emphasis on the training of people and how to make things better within the industry. Um, that's the main approach that's happening. Right. right now, it's more of a word of mouth. I mean, there are some, I mean, the, I don't know if I, SMA, for example, Stucco Manufacturers Association, you know, Mark Fowler, we all know Mark. He's done a stellar job in the last couple of years putting together a program on how to put stucco application together and training of people and stuff like that and offering it online and actually having classes. And that's just one organization that started with the food. So that's how that stuff is being recruited nowadays. Right. Well, you know, I really think that with, with COVID-19, it seems like that it's really made a lot of people rethink college mm-hmm. and the money that they've spent on college, you know, how much it costs regards to, in regards to, Hey, I can, this is something I don't have, that I can start today and take the next three, four years and learn this trade. And like you said, they are family sustaining jobs. They are not, it is not just uh, an hourly job, but it's something that you can really grow into. And well, it's just, if, if I go back to myself, I mean, I go, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the interview in 1992. I mean, my buddies and all that call it a Cinderella story. And I was in the right place at the right time and this particular cement chemist saw something in me yeah. and gave me an opportunity because you go back when you're talking Hannah about the, the college stuff I mean mm-hmm. technically I should have had a degree going into a cement lab yeah. I mean I make jokes about it but I mean I was no more qualified for that job than pigs fly backwards mm-hmm. when I took it yeah right but someone saw something and gave me an opportunity and to your point, Jill, I mean, if I hadn't done that, I would have been a bummer. I wouldn't have met y'all, but I would have supported my family because I was doing it then. Oh my gosh. I cannot even imagine life without <laughs> stucco Mike. That's just not even, that's not even okay to mention that. <laughs> so, but that's a big part of it. So that's how we got to get, we got to get the younger folks into it and, People have realized, to your point, Jill, since COVID, that you know a lot of young people have spent an awful lot of money to get their degrees, and they have a whole bunch of debt, oh, yeah. and they're not able to find a job mm-hmm. to help pay the down that debt, so they get discouraged. Yeah. Now, I'm saying that now that they went to school wasn't a bad thing. I'm not even implying that at all. Mm-hmm. But some people went to school for the sake of going to school. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't really need to or want to. Yeah, right. I mean, the trades, trades, regardless of the ones we're talking about or others, I mean, they are jobs that will, careers, for lack of a better word, that will help people better because a lot of people can expand within that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of plastering contractors where people started out mixing mud, then running mud, and now they're running crews. Mm -hmm. Same thing for ease. So there is an opportunity to expand and excel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even... uh as a daughter of a contractor who is not, he, he would never make it in college. <laughs> he's brilliant. He's not, not a, he's not a college guy. And same with my brother. My brother is just 
uh, following in my father's footsteps because he's like, school is not for me. I've tried over and over again, but I can learn this business. And not only do I learn contracting, I learn how to run a business and manage people. And then that can go into project managing. So it's so beneficial, especially with college tuition raising every single year for people who don't even want to be in school. It's man. It's crazy. So I know there's a lot of younger generation people out there who are in college and don't want to be there. So it's almost beneficial to go to college campuses and say, hey, drop out, come work for us. <laughs> like, well, yeah. That's kind of an approach that might not be bad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure the college, the, the campus people might kick you off. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so Mike, why don't you, uh, out of all, you've traveled a lot for your position, you know, you're moving from job to job. So I'm sure there's travel within that. So out of your travels, uh, what country or community needs the most attention with their stucco assemblies? You're talking about here in the States? Or you mean Anywhere. It's yeah, anywhere. And I know that's a heavy question too, because obviously other countries aren't like America, so they don't have the resources that we have. So it's. Why don't I back up and see, to the, I'll go back in 1995, mm -hmm. I spent a month in China and I went, I flew into Shanghai and I went to a, on a, on a train with the chickens and the goats to a town called E, Y-I-W-U. I spent a month there and what we did is we redid 14 buildings with the coating because the first time they did it, they had installed it wrong. Wow. So we spent the time there. It was a month, but we fixed that and all that. So to, to your question on that point, I think it's people making the assumption that just because it's a wall assembly or it's construction materials, that it's easy to do. It's yeah. not. Detailing needs to be taken care of putting systems together properly and the right sequencing needs to happen. So, I mean, and that was 1995, that's China. China has now changed. Mm -hmm. It's expanded, but I mean, that still fits into what I was doing. So that's something that needed to be done. I'm not sure if that fully answers your question or not, but oh, yeah. everybody does things their own way in a different way. Yeah. And that's kind of why when you come back to where we are now, where we've got the, the codes, the ASTMs and all that, those are rules that you're supposed to follow. Mm -hmm. It's not rules to make things more difficult for you. Yeah. It's rules based on experience on what's worked in the past and what will work in the future. So people have to understand how to detail it. So again, it goes back to the what we were talking about earlier with training. Yeah. Some people can go to college and they really don't pay attention so they don't get anything out of it. Same thing can happen with the contractor that goes to these trainings and decides, you know, it's really not that hard. I know everything. Mm -hmm. I can throw it up on the wall. And if they don't pay attention to the detail, they're going to have a problem, regardless if you're in the north, south, east, west, or whatever country you're in. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers a question. Yeah, all, no, it definitely. Is a, and kind of a side note, is China the farthest that you've traveled for uh, work, or is there... I've been to hard? China twice... Wow. I think China is the furthest. I've been to China twice, Germany four times, okay. and, and wow. Canada a couple. So the Chinese thing was quite different because the first time I was there for a month solid, mm. which was a long time. This yeah. was before cell phones and even pagers. So when I got there, I was there for a couple, three days before you know, my wife even knew wow. I'd even made it there. And then when I, I, I joke about the, the, 
the train, the chickens and the goats. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. No, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I was there. And then when, when I left the hotel in the morning, I took a cab to the job site. On the way back at the end of the afternoon, I was on the back of a rickshaw. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what a big change. <laughs> it, it, it was it was interesting. And the reason I say because I mean Shanghai is pretty cool at the time in 95. It's a lot different now, I'm sure. Yeah. When I went to EU, I was the second American those people had ever seen. Wow. And the first American they had seen was the guy we had sent down there the first time that screwed up the job. Oh no. <laughs> oh man. So you got a lot of pressure going into that situation then. <laughs> But, but it was quite cool. I learned a lot. I mean, I mean, they have job site trailer meetings just like we do here. Well, I couldn't understand the language, obviously. I can't speak Chinese. I'm not that smart. Yeah. <laughs> I had an interpreter, but it was really kind of cool. I learned a lot. Like when you went into the meetings and then as people get into the meetings and everybody sit down to go over the scheduling, I noticed people handing money to each other. And I asked my interpreter later, I said, well, what's this uh, exchanging of dollar bills and stuff? He said, well, it's a respecting. Did you notice that the people that were handing it out were the people that were late to the meeting? Wow. And I said, no, I didn't notice that until you pointed it out. But that's what it was. If the meeting started at nine o'clock, that meant nine o'clock, not nine oh one. Right. Oh my gosh, that was their fine. So they were paying a fine they were paying for being a fine and they had to pay it then. Oh wow. That is crazy. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. All right. We're going to, I'm implementing that now. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to owe you a lot of money. No, I'm you not. will not. <laughs> no, I'm usually pretty good. <laughs> it was kind of cool learning the different cultures and stuff like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. I've been, fort- I've been fortunate on that. Yeah. You now, when I went to the Germany things, those were business trips that had to do with learning the industry. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, they do. If you go all the way back in the East and stuff, I mean, you go overseas to Germany and all that, that's where the main players of the industry, we all know the names. That's where a lot of that stuff started. Yeah. So it was a different angle on how, what the benefit of East. You and I, for all three of us, we, I'm guessing you're not in the same house that you were born in. Yeah. When you go over there, you're in the same place pretty much forever. You don't upgrade and move to a different suburb. You go there and the materials and everything's different. And so they need the insulating value and that's how all the stuff with these come up. So I was quite interesting learning it from a different perspective there. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, so Mike, in your opinion, uh, do stucco manufacturers need to focus their attention more to the Southern markets or the Northern markets? Or is this sort of like apples to oranges? That one, I struggled with that one. Yeah. To figure it out, and that's where um, the answer I have with that is I wouldn't say it's necessarily apples to oranges, mm-hmm. but it's also, uh, again, the perception thing. It goes yeah. back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, believe it or not, I mean, the state of Minnesota at one point in time was probably one of the strongest stucco markets in the United States. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, Minnesota, well, they had a strong union presence. The installation, and I'll go back to my mom's house, was built in 1936. Wow. Maybe 30 years ago, might be 40, the house was restuccoed. Okay. Conventional stucco with all, all the fancy stuff. There's nothing wrong with that house. In Minnesota, you know, it gets cold and it stays cold. Yeah. So when you go to the southwestern part of the United States, stucco works very well, too. And I'll use Santa Fe, New Mexico as an example. We did a lot of testing on how our products worked in Santa Fe 
They said, why would you do your testing there? Well, it can be 70 degrees during the day and go down to 30 degrees at night. Wow. It cycles back and forth yeah. with what's happening. And when that happens, that changes the structure. It makes things move. Things have a tendency to crack or shift. Mm-hmm. In Minnesota, Michigan, and others, it gets cold and it stays cold. Yeah. Yep. Don't yeah. we know it? <laughs> but but the building goes through less cycles, but it still does perform in those cycles. So it goes down to the basic training of the installer. And we've learned a lot more over the years as it relates to water intrusion, dissimilar materials. And that's one thing I think that's helped us all in the industry. I know it's helped myself because when we talk about ceilings, cocks, and coatings, mm-hmm. how everything reacts together, works together. So whether you're in the south or the north, and this one might get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it. When you go around penetrations and openings, windows and doors, mm-hmm. let's say it's a vinyl window or a wood window, and you're putting it up against stucco or plaster. Mm-hmm. Both those materials have thermal differences in the way they act. Mm-hmm. So that's why somebody would put a sealant, not a cock, a sealant between the two, because as those two move, the sealant moves with it which prevents incidental moisture from getting inside. Mm-hmm. If they just butt them all up, and you can see that, you can see a stucco window, it's butted right to the stucco. Mm-hmm. It may not look like there's any penetration or crack, but it takes just a little opening for water to get back inside wow. and create issues. That happens in the north or the south. So I know that's kind of dancing, but it is kind of the way it works because in the south, you're going to see, I mean, there's one coat stucco and there's three coat stucco. Again, both of those are good products, good systems put together. Perception becomes a reality. In the northern part of the states, people don't want to use a one coat. They're going to use a three coat. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. You're in the Arizona market. You're going to see both of it. Perfect. Yeah. The, the, the distinct difference between them is how the detailing is done prior to the actual installation of a finished coat. Okay, yeah. Probably more detail than you wanted. No, never too much detail. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Um, so then we'll give you a a second to talk about, in your eyes, what is the perfect stucco installation? My eyes would be um, make sure that you sign off and that the substrate and everything else is done correctly. I'll get a little too detailed, but (laughs) let's talk a wood frame structure. You've got your studs and you've got plywood or OSB. Most jobs you go to, you will see where the plywood or the OSB is butted together. Mm -hmm. There's no gap between the two. There's a certain level of moisture that's already in board mm-hmm. and it's going to expand and contract based on that okay so if it's drying out or getting wet and the plywood has no room to move it's going to crack your system mm-hmm. so the first thing that you need to do is make sure that the plywood or the wood sheathing is gapped an eighth of an inch that's not something mike griffin's saying that's not something the industry's saying that's something that the wood people are saying yeah. It's stamped on every board from the APA, American Plywood Association, gap this. So you make sure that the substrate, what you're putting your system on, 
is correct. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing to do is going back to the details. Mm -hmm. You need to put a casing bead around. I mean, treat your penetrations, your openings, mm -hmm. prior to putting the system on. Make sure that once those penetrations and everything are taken care of, you install your system correctly, whether it's a one-coat stucco or a two-coat stucco. Mm -hmm. And in most markets or a lot of markets now, people are buying into the concept of a rain screen for in incidental drainage. And I'm not saying that to sell a product. What I'm saying is what that rain screen does is it creates a gap. Mm -hmm. In that gap allows air, which air movement helps to dry things out if you get incidental moisture. And it also provides an opening gap, slight gap, for if any incidental washer gets in there, that it can wick its way out to the wall. Okay. So for my perfect installation, I'm going to treat the substrate the way that it needs to be done, do the correct details around penetrations and opening. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter to me if it's one coat stucco or three coat stucco, follow the manufacturers and the ASTM guidelines on how to install it, finish it properly, and you shouldn't have any issue. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first, people. Stucco Mike's perfect <laughs> stucco installation. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Jill. Any uh, any other questions? We want to talk about associations at all, or I guess the final question that I have for you, Mike, is in out of all of the people that you've met and your throughout your career and throughout your journey, who would you say has been uh, one of the most influential people that you've met over the years? Or someone that has really impacted, impacted your career. He's no longer with us. The man's name is Art O'Haver. Mm. And who's and, Art? Yeah, Art O'Haver. And he was the, when I, back in the day, when I got started, he was the national vice president of sales for that organization. And he's the one that said, get close to the contractor. Understand your products take them hunting, take them fishing, get to know who they are and make sure that you pull the product through distribution. Mm -hmm. The only real analogy I can ever give are, have you ever seen the movie, The Dirty Dozen? With Lee yes. Marvin? Uh -huh. Art was Lee Marvin. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, there's a number of us that were from, I came from the trades as a pointer, cocker, bricklayer. Another one of the people that he saw some opportunity in was another guy down in Louisiana who was an iron worker. He didn't, he had a good, he was instinctively good at judging how people would be and seeing what their weaknesses were and how to strengthen them and how to take the strengths one has and make them work. We were not cookie cutters. We were all different. He operated on that. He was, a, it was a 24 seven job. Mm -hmm. you are available 24 seven to make this work. If you want to build a market presence. So wow. probably more mush than you want to hear, but art's the one guy when you said, that's why I didn't think about it. Cause he's the one that helped me get to where I'm at. He saw something uh, that's and awesome. he pushed. He, it wasn't easy working for art, mm -hmm. but he pushed you. Yeah. That's and I awesome. remember back in the day, this is back a hand. You might not remember these, but faxes in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Every morning, our fax machine would go off with the numbers we had from the day before. Yeah. And my call, my weekly call with him was Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> what was going on? And then someone else got the call at 8. That's just the way he was. So. Wow. A lot of respect for that, man. Mm -hmm. 
That's awesome. Well, I think that might wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannah, do you have anything else you want to ask? Um, uh, Mike, why don't you just really fast, why don't you tell us the associations that you're currently involved in right now? Currently today, I'm involved in TLPCA, Texas Laugh and Plaquer Contractors Association, and I'm an associate board member there. Okay. National One Code Stucco Association, or NOXA. I'm the immediate past president. Up until February, I was part of SMA when I was talking about Mark Fowler, but since I left, I had my seat on the board as a keen person. Okay. Since I left, someone else from there got that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been involved a little bit in all of them. And as far as demand is going, we're, we're joining them. And the biggest part with all those associations, whether you're on the board, is to be a participating member or not. I've been fortunate that I've been on the board of a number of them. Mm-hmm. That's probably because they can't find anybody else to do it, but (laughs) they're very good organizations. I've been involved in them. I firmly believe in them. And I've also known that if you're part of those associations, that's a good way to get closer to your contractors and understanding what the technical side of things are. And that goes back to like, um, and then Jill knows this too. I mean, there's a number of them across the United States and I've been members of a lot of them, but currently it's Texas Lath and Plaster. Mm -hmm. Currently it's NOCSA. Our company has joined others, but I'm not on those boards. Okay. All right. Very cool. Fabulous. Well, Mike, we are so grateful for your time. We're grateful for everything that you've uh, accomplished and have given into the this incredible industry. Because mm-hmm. I know all the contractors definitely appreciate Stucco Mike and everything you've done to help <laughs> them. And it's so fun to have the opportunity to, to meet with you virtually over, you know, Zoom here and tell your story because it's definitely one that is, has had years of experience. So again, Mike, we're honored and thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And, every, and everybody else who's watching, if you have any questions, you can reach out to us at wconline.com. While you're there, please make sure you sign up for our free e-magazine, our free e-newsletters, and register for our website. And that way you'll always be up to date and you'll know when we post some new interviews with incredible people like Mike Griffin. And please stay safe and healthy. We look forward to talking to you next time. 